you were to get into the wall and have that right front come back at you, you're dead. Right. It's just that simple. And so just looking at the cars, you don't crash. I mean, that's the number one thing. Uh, thanks for making the drive up uh, just to do this podcast. I appreciate it. <laughs> no worries, you got it. Yeah, nothing to do, nothing to yeah. do with the Toronto Indy the, <laughs> the next couple of days. No, it's all good. It's all good. I, I, uh, I love the relationship that uh, that I started with your dad back in 2014 yeah. when we we won, won the the SBRA Pro Am there at Indianapolis, and uh, and you know we've been good friends ever since so yeah this you guys is, kicked this is butt. great yeah. yeah yeah we did yeah so tell me about what you're doing this weekend at the indy so this weekend we've been uh brought up by fell which is fel yep i don't know what that stands for okay yep. Yep. chris by yep. is, is the head of it and yep. so uh so he brought us up last year to come in and sign some autographs and so on and and uh and we had a a, a good time with it and so he uh he said al come on up again this year and and uh, and this time we're gonna we're gonna bring scott goodyear which you know the relationship i have with scott goodyear is the closest finish at indy and so um scott and i have become real good friends you know we were we were competitors at the time right and because it has remained the closest finish since 1992 is when we did that we do a bunch of things together now, you know, after racing and all that. So, so he's become a really, really good friend of mine. And, and so, uh, um, he's had a relationship with Chris by yep. quite some time. And so now the, you know, uh, two of us are going to be up signing autographs at the, at the Toronto Grand Prix and, uh, watching a great IndyCar race right and on. watching you race too. Yeah, yeah, so, we'll, we'll yeah. race on the Friday in the NASCAR. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, that picture, because I was born in 92, and okay. for whatever reason, my dad had that picture always hanging above my bed. Nice. Yeah. So yeah. that's what made you a racer. Uh, something like that. <laughs> yeah, n nothing to do with him or the, right, <laughs> the, right, 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 putting right. me in a go-kart. But let's, uh, you know, I, and again, you've done a lot of podcasts, you've done a book. Um, but I want to keep this kind of as a standalone because a lot of my guests or my listeners, sorry, wouldn't, uh, you know, maybe not have listened to your podcast with Junior mm -hmm. or have read your book. Right. So let's right. go back to, you know, you're, you're born in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And when you're born, your dad and uncle are already racing, already professional race car drivers? Yes, okay. absolutely. You know, uh, well... Okay, so chronologically, I was born in 1962. Uh, my uncle Bobby was a rookie at Indianapolis in '63. Okay, Dad was a rookie at Indy in '65. Okay, so not right when I was born, but when I was extremely young. So as soon as I got, basically, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old, that's when they became successful right at Indianapolis so Uncle Bobby's first victory was 68 dad's first victory was 1970 and then right at 71 is when I started racing go-karts right in, okay. in 1971 and how so, did that come about it came about ironically because a go-kart track was built within a mile of the of, of our house 
Okay, that and works. So, excuse me. And so, uh, so yeah. So this go kart track is built, and it's right just up the street from from where we lived there in Albuquerque, and and uh, and we started racing. So your dad that, came that home it. with a cart. Dad came home with a go kart. You know, we we. Uh, I was itching at it. I was I was asking for it, you right. know. Dad, you know, let's get a go kart and so on. Well, okay. So then, uh, so then he got one, brought it home, and uh, and the rest is history. So yeah. how were you successful right away? I mean, I guess it was probably a new kart club, and and everyone was new to the track. So you you weren't at a you know you weren't showing up at 14 years old racing against guys who have been established there forever. That is correct. Yeah, everybody was pretty new. Um, the go-kart track, by the time I started racing, was about two to three years old, okay. max, okay? And so um, the competition was good. You know, there was one kid that uh, sure. that was pretty quick and, and so on. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, within a real short time, we were, we were winning races. So, right. Yeah. And did your dad kind of have this grand plan for you or at least he had already you know seen what it would take or the the skills you'd need to develop to to be an indie car racer did he because you went to sprint cars next and that's a mm-hmm. pretty big jump mm-hmm. why why did why did sprint cars happen and i guess how many years were you karting before that happened right right so um i think there was a plan that right. my dad had but it was fluid, very fluid. Mm. And so um, we started racing the go-karts at nine years old. And then I, I got into sprint cars when I was 16. Okay. So the years between was go-kart racing. We won some championships there locally, right. there in Albuquerque. Um, we didn't travel very much at all. You know, there was a couple times I went to some different cities there in New Mexico, but, uh, but no serious traveling at all with the, with the go-kart. And then, uh, and then locally there in Albuquerque, um, I raced, actually, I started racing the sprint car on the same exact track that my dad and uncle Bobby started on, uh, Speedway Park. It was a little quarter mile, uh, dirt oval that, uh, that they started running at the time was 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 the super modifieds but you know the it was the beginning of the sprint car with them sure okay so uh by the time i came along uh the sprint car was in full swing and all that kind of stuff and so yeah so so it was you know go-kart to a sprint car that's a pretty big step okay and so you know that's where i think my dad went you know, let's see. Hmm. Let's let's just watch and see how he does, and uh, and then we'll go from there. And and uh, uh, I was able to adapt to it really quick. Had a lot of fun with it, and uh, and so yeah, we just kept going. And I so I think the plan that my dad yes he had a plan, hmm. but it was for every step that I took that was up the ladder. Can he do it? Can he accept it? Can can he be successful at it? And I think that's where the plan was fluid, right? You know, on, right. on so on. So, you know, uh, all the way from the go kart, then a sprint car, 
then a Super V, which is kind of like a mini Indy car, yep. and then a Can-Am car, and then the Indy car. And so every step I took, I was able to be successful at it and adapt to it and, and do it in a safe manner. Right. You know, so. Sounds like he was really kind of testing your talent because there's, you know, other than a steering wheel, gas, and a brake, the difference between an asphalt road course go-kart and a dirt oval sprint car there's not a whole lot yeah no it was it was just uh you know that that was kind of the path because of where i lived Mm. okay had i lived back east okay so like for example michael andretti's ladder yeah okay was go-karts to a formula ford right right to the super v he never saw dirt. He never he never ran a sprint car or anything like that. And so it was just the location of where I was and what kind of racing was going on locally right. that I could get into. And I guess your dad would have been pretty busy, you know, during, obviously, during oh, yeah, race during season. Oh, yeah, during the summer, yep. So yep. how did that, you know, were you taking yourself to the racetrack by the time you were 16, 17, or did you have someone helping you out? Yeah, we definitely had someone helping us out. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Larry Bond that okay. helped with the go-karts, okay? Uh, because, again, the, the racing season's during the summer. Um, I had a choice there when I was 9, 10, 11 years old. You know, my dad would say, do you want to come to my races and spend the summer with me? Mm. Or do you want to stay in Albuquerque and race the go-kart? And I said, well, I want to race the go-kart. I don't want to watch you race. I want to race, you know, kind of thing. And so it was – so we had a helper there. When I got into the sprint car, his name was Walter Judge, uh, very experienced man, so on. So, so yeah, so there was always somebody there, and actually – it was Walter Judge who really mentored me to to um, be at the racetrack, be professional about it, you know, because that's that was the first professional. That's when I became a professional race car driver is the sprint car. Right. And and so um, he really mentored me a, a lot. He was I was 16. He was 63. Okay, which I thought he was an old man, right? right? <laughs> Today I'm 61 years yeah, old, and I'm going, "Oh my God," you know, kind of thing. And, and uh, but uh, he had a lot to do with with my success, getting to Indy and beyond. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now I assume when you guys were really young, your dad was struggling financially as a as a as a rookie, and then by the time you you started racing. Did the did the lifestyle change a bunch? Was he making good money at that time? Not really. No, no. I mean, he um, because he was successful at Indianapolis, he made a good chunk of change for the Indy Five Hundred. Okay, so back then the salaries were either very low or non-existent right. at all. Okay, and so the race car driver, the professional race car driver, made how he made a living was a percentage of the car. Okay. So prize money. Yep. Okay, so that was the dominant factor when my dad and Uncle Bobby came through the 60s and 70s. Mm. It really wasn't until the 80s, which is when when I came along and ESPN Mm. came along. 
okay, that the salaries started becoming strong. Right. You know, so right. prior to that, it 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 wasn't. It was the the driver made his living by racing cars. Right. You know. So. So you jump to Formula V, and they're predominantly ovals with some road courses. Um, no, or Super V. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, the Super V is is uh, dominantly road courses okay. with some ovals in there. Got it. Yeah. So yeah. a pretty good. Now, now you're in a an open wheel car with some ovals, road courses. Yep. You know, maybe not the same tracks, but mimicking what IndyCar is is going to be. Correct. Like. Correct. We we went to Milwaukee, we went to Michigan, and we went to Phoenix for the ovals. Got it. Those were the oval races. All the rest, there was, I think, nine races during the year. Three of them were ovals. The rest were road courses. Got it. Yep. So, you're. I guess. How old are you when you're in the in the super in the form super V? Super V. I was. Uh, what was I? Nineteen. Okay, so you're done school. Yep. Yeah. Now, yep. how did you conceptualize being a professional race car driver? Were you Were you making any money at that time? At yeah, you know, being. I started the, the, the sprint car as a sophomore in high school. Okay. Okay. And so that first year, I think I made somewhere around 3000 to 3500 during that summer. Yeah. That was good money for me. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, that was, that was strong. Mm -hmm. And so it, it got better, you know, a little bit better every, every year. And then, uh, and then again, it, it just so happened that when I was 18 and I graduated high school, um, I met my first wife, Shelly. And uh, uh, so we traveled the summer doing that, running the sprint car. And then at the end of that summer, I moved from Albuquerque to Phoenix, Arizona with, with Shelly. Okay. And I started working for a, a really good sprint car car owner mm. his name was gary stanton okay. and he was dominating in the world of outlaws ronnie schumann was his driver and and so they were they were winning a lot and so um i was up and coming and so he hired me i worked in his in his shop during the winter mm. of that of that year and uh, and then started running in the spring for gary we had a couple successful races, and then we couldn't do anything. Okay, okay? we were we were struggling. Right at that time, Rick Gallus out of Albuquerque started his own team. Okay, he had been running Formula Fords, SCCA events. He he drove himself in a a Sports Two Thousand car, and and so he wanted to go start his own team. Um, and, uh, and so he called me up on the phone in the spring of 1981. Okay. Okay. And I wasn't doing well in the sprint car. Mm. I was living in, in Phoenix. He says, Al, would you drive my Super V? And I went, yes, I would love to. Right. Kind of thing. And so he paid me a salary. Wow! Which I didn't. I wasn't getting from Gary Stanton. I was. I was having to work the eight-hour day, five days a week to to get some pay. Okay, and uh, and so, 
he offered me a salary and, and a job, and, and I went to Gary, and I said, can I get out of this contract? And he said, yes, I would <laughs> love that. <laughs> you know, because like I said, we weren't doing well at all, and so he wanted to change too. Okay. And so I went uh, went to work for Rick, and, and then Rick is the one who took me to Indianapolis two years later. So wow. he owned the, the Super V. Okay. He owned the Can-Am car. So you did one year in Super V. One year in Super V. And then how how did like Can Am again is is a massive leap and in, in, in a different way to a full body sports car. You know. Correct. Correct. It was a big step. Who decided that? Was that your dad again? It was actually yes. The answer is yes. It was okay. dad because at that time uh, in cart in the championship auto racing teams, you could drive at 18 years old. You could be a driver. Right. Okay. Indy, you had to be 21. For the Indy 500. For the Indy 500. Got it. And that was the only Indy car race that was not sanctioned by CART. Okay. So, it was USAC. So it was USAC. Okay. That's right. So um, Rick wanted to go from the Super V straight to the Indy car. He <laughs> wanted to get, he wanted to go IndyCar racing right. as a car owner. Right. And we were super successful and he had, I mean, he was spending a lot of money, I a bet. lot of money. Okay. And, and so, uh, it was dad who stepped in and said, look, he can't go to Indy hmm. until the following year. So why don't you take this year and work on your team? You know, he's hmm. saying this to Rick and to me. You know, instead of jumping in so soon, because this is this is big time racing. Yeah. Why don't you take a year to really get your team working together? In other words, Super V's don't make pit stops. Mm. Can-Am cars do. Right. OK, so it's a whole nother level. It's a step in between with power mm -hmm. and speed. What kind of horsepower okay. were they in 82? They were running right at 500, 550 horsepower. So is this the Can-Am car? Yeah, is this after the big horsepower Can-Am yes, cars? Yes. Okay. It's after. Yeah. Yeah. So it's they, after they like had, the nine seventeen conversion oh, yeah. and all that oh, crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They, they, we had half of the power that 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 nine seventeen did. So a little bit safer. even even less. Right. You know, I mean, just yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got yeah. it. So last so. night I watched uh, I watched you win the most port race, yep. flag to flag. Yeah. And you won it twice that year. Yeah. Both both we raced twice at Mossport and we won both of them. Yeah. How again? You jump from a well, I guess the form the or the Super V, but again that's a big step to a full body car, and would you put it just on talent that you were able to go out and you know, win a bunch of races in, in the K&M car? It was, it was a combination. I can't say it was just me. It was a combination of the engineers that we had, the team that we had, being able to relate with them mm -hmm. and and going out and, and uh, you know, feeling the car and, and so on. And, and it was an extremely good car, mm. the Frisbee, yeah. which then turned into – where Gallus redesigned it, turned into the GR1 and the GR, which GR stands for Gallus Racing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a combination of a lot of things melting together. And, right. Yeah. So in the back of your mind, it's the goal is IndyCar. We're doing this. Absolutely. We're doing this to, you know, 
build the team, work on pit stops, Absolutely. all that stuff. Yep. And then, so they fund the full IndyCar program mm -hmm. for the next year. Are you required to look for sponsors or anything like that? Or are you just collecting your salary? Myself, no. Okay, okay so Rick hired me straight away to run the Super V. Then I, we, we, we get a raise for the for the uh, Can-Am car mm -hmm. and so on. And, and so uh, how it worked was Rick hired me, then him and I would go in and make sponsor presentations Got it. together. Got it. In other words, we're going racing. This is where we go to the sponsor. We're going racing. We have a real good competitive team. Why don't you join us, sponsor our car, become our partner, and reap the benefits from that? And mm. so instead of going in to a sponsor and going, you know, I really need you to sponsor my car in order for me to go racing, that just doesn't work. That doesn't that doesn't show commitment on on the team side. Right. Okay. So that's how and and pretty much throughout my career. That's how it worked. Mm. So once, once uh, like with Gallus, we went and we got the sponsorships together. And then the very next team I, I drove for was Doug Shearson, was the car owner, the Domino's Pizza car. Okay. He already had Domino's Pizza as a sponsor. Right. So I didn't have to go, you know, he hired me just purely driving. And then that's the way it was with my career from that point forward. Sure the teams already had their existing sponsors. And so I didn't have to make presentations at that time. Right. So put me back in that first IndyCar race. Were you, you know, nervous? Were you struggling <laughs> to figure out the car? You know, it's a, it's a massive jump to the biggest stage that, it, that you've it looked, was. looked at your so, whole life. So, yeah. So the, my rookie season, 1983, we, I always wanted a car that no one else had. Okay. Okay. So uh, I convinced Rick and Rick, Rick loved the idea, so on, to go with a Dan Gurney Eagle. Okay. Okay. And you bought it from and, Gurney? And, yep. Rick, Rick ordered it and so on. And, and so the, the 83 Eagle was late. Okay. Coming. And so my first race was in the 82 Eagle. And what had happened with the rules at that time with CART is in 1981, the or in 1982, the eagle, the the skirts, the side pods, mm -hmm. were were down level with the bottom of the tub. So between the years of 82 and 83, they came up with this two inch rule, mm. which the side pods had to be two inches higher than the bottom of the car. This is all in the development of the ground effects. Right. Okay. And so prior to that, they sealed it with sliding skirts. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. And so they outlawed those. And so the next step was to bring it two inches up. And so what that did was that killed the 82 Eagle. Okay. It killed its downforce, killed its grip. Okay. Right. And so. So you had a lump. Oh, it was bad it was bad so our first race was supposed to be at phoenix arizona okay on the one mile oval we had been testing there 
I was two seconds a lap slower than the competitors. Okay. Like <laughs> had we gone there, okay, the race was canceled. Okay. Because of a waterway that was released. There was too much rain during the winter and the waterway uh closed the track. Okay. So no fans could get in. Okay. So they canceled the event, which I was going, thank you, God, you know, because because I would have been so super slow. I mean, like, <laughs> like bad. Yeah. So our next race was Atlanta with the high banks, and I was still way slow. We had to take a rear wing from a Formula 5000 car. Okay. Okay. And put it on it to have any grip at all. Once we did that, I was able to run wide open all the way around the track. Yep. Have some grip at 186 miles an hour while the competitors were running 205. Jeez. Okay? So I started last. Right. Okay? Ran around there, and uh, at the end of the event, I finished sixth. Really? At the end of the event because of the attrition and all that kind of stuff, people having problems, so on and so forth in the pits. We just stayed out there running wide open all the way around and, <laughs> and just stayed out of trouble, ran low. Yep. All the guys are going by me on the outside and stuff like that. We ended up, yeah, somewhere, somewhere like six or something. That, that for, must have felt like a win. It Well, yeah, I mean, we finished. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were super slow. Okay? Right. So. But in that car, you know, yeah, you could, in, before yeah. the race, that many miles an hour down, you could calculate how many laps down you'd finish before oh, yeah. that. And I was yeah. that many laps down, like four, five, six laps down. Okay. Right. But the next race was the Indy 500. I finally get the, the 83 Eagle. Mm. I actually, in April... We only had the 82 Eagle, okay. did the rookie orientation at right. Indy, okay? When I was not old enough, I was still 20 years old at that time. My, my birthday is April 19th, okay. so it was before that. And we went there, and I couldn't pass the final stage of rookie orientation at Indy. Okay. So I failed rookie orientation when we did that and and why couldn't you pass it because of the 82 eagle had no grip i mean this car was just so it was on speed yes okay. yeah there's stages there's you know they, they they ask you to run 10 laps between 180 and 185 and then 185 and 90 and then 90 to 95 is the final stage yeah. i could not run 190 miles an hour car wouldn't do it it would not do it it would i mean i'm driving it sideways off a of turn four going ah like this you know <laughs> and it, thank god my dad yep. was there you know and, and he'd he'd grab me and he'd go look if the car's not there it's not there right you know so don't be thinking that you can do something here it's just you need the car to run 200 miles an hour it's just that simple yeah and so i went okay okay so we uh we run atlanta we come back to indy for the first day of practice and uh first week of practice i have my 83 eagle yep world of difference all of a sudden i've got grip it's comfortable i can drive around there i ended up uh, my rookie year qualifying fifth Wow. 
you know? And so, uh, yeah, we were, they're just how things fell, yeah. you know, I, it was, uh, yeah. yeah. So you're now, you're now in IndyCar, you're at the Indy 500. Do you think about, or do you have conversations with your dad about driving an IndyCar, the dangers of IndyCar, kind of, you know, how to go about the race? Do you, you know, that, hey, we don't crash here kind of thing? Well, just looking at the car, okay, you know you didn't crash, right? You, you know, I mean, I had, it was, uh, that 83 Eagle is aluminum honeycomb as a chassis. It only comes up to your hips. Everything above your hips is all just fiberglass that it's just a body. Right. You know, and so, you know, if you were to get into the wall, and have that right front come back at you, you're dead. Right. It's just that simple. And so just looking at the cars, you don't crash. I mean, that's the number one thing. Okay. So, uh, but yes, my dad's experience there was huge, huge help. Okay. We didn't talk about the dangers. The dangers are obvious. Right. Okay. So it's not that it's what we talked about was, you know, having the car comfortable having a a, a really tight back end mm. okay and and because you can throttle and understeer you know you can feel that and and judge that you can't throttle a loose no okay so no. as soon as it steps out you're out of it you know right. kind of thing and so you want that back end solid underneath you all the time and so that was, you know, dad's going, you have to have this. Mm. It, this, this, this isn't something that is a maybe. Right. You have to have this. And so with his experience, that's how dad really helped me. And then, you know, during the race, he told me, just, just look around the corner. Okay. Don't, don't be concentrating on the guy or the guy in front of him. Be looking around the corner when you start to come up to it because there's a lot that can be going on over there. Right. And because of how fast you're going, you're on it like that. Okay. So quite honestly, at Indianapolis, if you're reacting to something, it's too late. Right. Everything has to be in anticipation of what's going on in front of you. So... You got to drive way out in front of where you're actually at. Right. Yeah. Right. So with the 83 car, yeah, I mean, you've got speed now. You qualify fifth. Mm -hmm. When do you, I mean, when, when does success in your mind happen in IndyCar where you go, hey, I can, I can win races? Um, not until I won my first race, sure. honestly, but, but uh, no, when we got the 83 Eagle and we're campaigning that 83 season, there was a lot of races that I actually was leading mm. and was gone. Okay. And, uh, one of them, for example, was Michigan. You know, we, it, the car was super quick there. The one thing that, that the 83 Eagle had that was different from the March or the Penske of that day is it had less downforce, but it also had less drag. Okay. So the tracks that really didn't need downforce, okay, that the, the drag was more important like Road America. 
Michigan because of the banking. Hmm. Uh, uh, also Riverside, Riverside. So those three, those three tracks, we were gone in the race, leading it, gone. Just, you know, and uh, we always had a mechanical failure or something like that. So, so during that season, you know, we were able to qualify up front. We were able to race with the top teams and sometimes outrun the top teams. You know, my first win didn't come until the second year, which, uh, which was at Portland. And we decided to go with, in, in 84, instead of a car of our own, that, that we decided to get a March okay. chassis. And so we campaigned that that car through the year so right and we were with the leaders you know we were always i heard you know from the very get-go except those first couple of races yeah we as a team were able to to race the best of them right did did things change with your dad now that you're a competitor against him like you might absolutely okay absolutely and how it changed in the go-kart, the sprint car, the Can-Am car, so on, my dad would come up to me and offer advice. Okay, Al, this is what I see you doing out there. Try this. Right. Okay, kind of thing. Once I started racing against him in the Indy cars, that stopped. Okay. There was no heat. So, so but if I asked the question... He'd tell me the truth. Sure. So I had to ask the question, and, and I, I finally pushed it far enough where, like, we're at Pocono, and, uh, and I go, Dad, what springs are you running on your car? <laughs> yeah. Okay? And he'd go, Al, <laughs> even if I told you the springs that are on my car, the, 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 the rocker arm ratios are different from my car to your car. So you, you, you wouldn't be able to run the springs I'm running. That was his answer. Yeah. The, 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 the wheel ratio is different. <laughs> and I went, okay, whatever, you know. So he wouldn't tell me no. Yeah. No. Obviously, I mean, being a professional race car driver, you're going to be a competitive guy, right? Even if it's, oh, yeah. even if it's oh, your yeah. own son. Oh, yeah. We were all competitive and, you know. So, so. were you, I guess, um, and I don't know, were there other young guys coming into IndyCar at the time? Because you would have been, for that time period, it's not like today where, you know, guys are 16, 15, right, 17, right, going right. into Formula One at 18. Were you considered a pretty young guy? And, and was there, um, you know, was there a dynamic in the garage, you being so young coming in? The answer is yes. We, we okay, I had one other gentleman Michael Andretti. Right. He was my direct contemporary, and he was my age. He was really good. And so the answer is yes. It was the two of us coming in to the old guard. Mm. and But because of who we were, right. we were accepted right away. Right. Okay, so basically the indie car fraternity had already grown up with us right so we weren't nothing new and you weren't new last names in. and correct and right. and so you know they accepted us and um 
you know, next to that, the young guys were Bobby Rahal mm. and Rick Mears, right. which were eight to ten years older than, but they were starting right at the same time. Okay, so so basically, Rick Mears's rookie year was seventy nine. Mine was eighty three. Ray Hall's rookie year was eighty two, where mine was eighty three. Right. Michael's. Uh, Andretti's rookie year was 84. Okay, so early 80s, you've got five guys coming in. Their ages varied a little bit, you know, but Michael and I were the youngest guys coming in. Yeah, Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, you finished second to your dad in 85? In the championship, is in the, that correct? Yep, yep, yep. In what, the championship, what was that year like? Was it was it a heated? It was weird. It was weird. It was it was. I had joined the Domino's Pizza team with Doug Shearson, and what they had developed right at the end of the '84 season, going into the '85 season, was a really trick rear wing. Okay. Okay. And it was for high downforce. So it was the short ovals and all the road courses. Right. Okay. And this trick rear wing, we developed it throughout the, the summer. Um, yeah, we won four races. Um, there was drivers getting hurt. Okay. So I broke my ankle in 1985. Uh, Mario broke his ribs in 1985. You know, there was... There was a lot of accidents. Rick Mears was was out because he broke his feet in 84, okay? And so he was out for that season. Dad was a replacement driver for Rick Mears during that season with Penske, mm. okay? And didn't even race all the races, okay? So he he I think he missed one or two races where they put Johnny Rutherford in the car. Okay. And uh and so um yeah, it was it was, you know, there was a lot of mechanical failures during that that year and so the the actually the point totals were pretty low. Right. Okay. Okay. Because of the finishing. And so but we found ourselves, you know, about halfway through the season, we were leading the championship. And I led most of that from the from the about middle of the year to right to the second to last race my dad wins phoenix arizona on the the oval i finished second he took the point lead from me by like two points or something and that was the first time i had lost the lead for most of the summer and so there's only one race left tamiami park okay and because of the rest of the field it was just dad and I that could win the championship. No one else could. Right. Okay, so third place, he was down enough points. He couldn't, if we both fell out, okay, then, then and so we knew it was going to be either dad or myself to win that championship. And, and so there was a lot of stress there. Yeah, I mean, it was too much. And, and at the time, had I won the championship, I would have become the youngest in the history of IndyCars, and the record I would have broken was A.J. Foyt's. Okay. 
record. So there was, I mean, it was, you know, there was big time for me at that time. And, and so. And how did, how did the last race shake out? Well, um, we qualified like third or fourth. Yeah. Okay. Dad qualified like 12th or 15th, something like that. And he had to finish right behind me, no matter where we finished in the race he had to finish right behind me in order to win the championship. Got it. So if I only had one car between him and I, then I would win the championship. Right. And so that's the way the race went for most of the race, was I had either one or more cars between us until like the last five laps. And then he passes... um, uh, Roberto Moreno, okay, and f- I finished third, he finished fourth, he wins the championship. Wow. Yeah. That must have been bittersweet for him a little bit. It was for him. Yeah. yeah if, if dad, you know, he, like, after the race, when he pulled up next to me, you know, he just came up and went, you know, what can I do? Sorry, yeah. you know, kind of thing, but he, cause he's got a job to do, Absolutely. you know, and, and so it's just the way it unfolded. Hmm. That's all. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, when does the first championship happen for you? 1990. 1990. Yep. And had you won the 500 before that? No. And did you, you won it that season? No. Okay, you won it after that. Yep, okay. yep, yep. So, um, what, what, what's bigger for you, the championship or the 500? The 500. Okay. No doubt about it. Hmm. No doubt about it. But then right there is, you know, just below it is the championship. I mean, because the championship takes all year long. Yep. You know, I mean, it's with your team. It's got to perform day in and day out. The Indy 500 is its own championship in the month of May. Right. So it's kind of separate, you know, and, it, and it's so big. And so... Yeah, the right. 500. Huh, yeah. that's got to be and one And we the... came really close in 89 yep. when Emerson and I were, were running and, and, you know, we got together and there was only one car going to come out of that one, right? Yep. And, and so we came super close in 89 that year. And uh, so the team was there. We were doing all the right things to, to be winners. It just, you know, it took us a few years. So 90 was the championship, won a lot of races. Um, 92 is when we won the 500. Right, right. So, Scott Goodyear there. Yeah. yeah. So you go to Penske. Is that a big change to such a long-established organization? Is it a, is it a pay increase? Um, actually, it was, yes, a pay increase. Um, it wasn't what I was negotiating. Okay. I was negotiating with, uh, with Newman Haas, Carl Haas. Okay. And, uh, that was a big number. Okay. And so Penske actually offered me half of what that number was. Wow. Okay. And I said, of course, yes, I want to drive for Roger. You know, when you get the call from Roger, you get the call from Roger. Right. And so, you know, you're going to you know, pretty much do whatever it takes to, to do that. And so, uh, yeah, that's what we did. So, you know, you've won the 500. You've won the championship. You're a household name in the U.S. Where does 
the NASCAR fit in? How do how do you how do you you know was it sponsor driven because you went and raced the date or the mm -hmm. Daytona, Daytona 500 in in '93? Yeah. Okay, so that's the year after I won the 500. Uh, it totally Valvoline paid for that whole ride and all that kind of stuff. A one off. Okay. Valvoline was was my major sponsor. They they uh, loved me and I loved them and and so on. Still to this day. Yeah. Okay. And so. Um, but yeah, that's that's the reason for that. NASCAR was really on the rise in popularity at that time. Sure, yeah. Okay, and so I was getting offers to go down and run NASCAR full time, full time. Okay, and I was willing to do that because my whole dream was to to race and win the Indy Five Hundred. Right. And so once I did that, like I had some F one offers prior to that, mm. and I told them no. Wow. Okay. It, it's, well, Bernie Ecclestone calls me up at the end of the 85 season, and in that wintertime, he offers me a full-blown uh, Brabham second ride to Nelson PK. He, like, three, three times the salary I was making at that time. He flat offers it to me on the phone. Wow. Al, I'll pay you this. I want you to be my second driver to Nelson. Come on over. I want you. And I said, hey, Bernie, you know, I, I really appreciate this call, but I got it. I want to do good at Indy. Yeah. You know, which hindsight, looking back at it, I should have gone. Okay. Okay. To F1 and then come back to Indy like Emerson and Nigel Mansell. And, you know, I, sh I should have. Not knowing, I didn't know that that was going to be my only serious opportunity to go F1. Right. Okay. And I didn't realize at the time how big Formula One is. Right. You know, I just didn't realize it. That's, you know, I was, you know, kid from New Mexico and so on. And, you know, watch his dad and Bobby only do the Indy 500. And, yeah. you know, I just didn't, I didn't know. I just didn't know. Right. Okay. And so... Um, so yeah, yeah. That was, Do you that was... think, uh, you know, th that's a good point to go there and then come back. You probably would have, again, like how you, you know, race sprint cars and then the Can-Am, I'm sure you would have picked up a bunch over in Europe. We would have adapted to the cars, sure. Yeah, and sure, brought back some, know, yeah. some more skills. Yeah, I, I tested the Williams car and, and adapted to it pretty quickly and, and, uh, and was, did good, you know, and then, uh, and so, yeah, so. As we get down the road with, with 92, Daytona 500, 93, yep. had those opportunities, and my dad was just so against it, mm. okay? And the reason why is because my dad had bad experiences with NASCAR, okay? okay? Um, where, you know, NASCAR really wanted to control who their drivers were mm. so that they could promote their series. They didn't want, and and I can see this to be true and makes a lot of sense. They don't want drivers coming in from F1 or IndyCar and showing up the boys that they're, they're pushing to yeah. be the best drivers in the world because that's what they're doing. Right. And they were, you know, I mean, Bill Elliott, 
Dale Earnhardt Sr., you know, uh, Daryl Waltrip, Kel Yarbrough. Yeah. These guys are legends, and they and they are. They're 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 good, and and so, um, but NASCAR was real protective of that. Okay, mm-hmm. and so when my dad would come and race NASCAR, which he would do every now and then, um, and he'd be quick, NASCAR would make sure to slow him down. Mm. And so he had those bad experiences, okay, which these are in the days when the car rolled into tech and they'd shut the garage doors. Got it. Okay. Got it. And they'd do their own tack on that car. And then, you know, it wasn't open. And, and so thumbs up or thumbs down. Yeah. And so, you know, it was, it was kind of those days. And so my dad, his advice was, you know, Al, they're just going to eat you up and spit you out. You know, right. they, you're, you're not one of the good old boys. So, you know, and so, which in fact, at the time with my dad's experience was correct. Sure. Okay. But all of that was changing in the early nineties. Okay. And so, uh, the garage doors in tech started to remain open. The competitiveness was, was starting to, they were self-policing each other. Mm. Okay. So NASCAR really was, was, it was a whole change of, of times and all that kind of stuff. And, and so the answer is yes, I should have gone. Okay. And, you know, dad, no, you're wrong. I see a change in NASCAR. And so I should have gone, but I didn't, I, you know, dad was, I, I just, I, I kind of took his advice because that is the kind of experience I had in 93. Okay. With the Daytona 500 where, you know, we were quick and all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden in tech, all of a sudden my front front dam on the, on the front was too low. And so what they did, what Waddell Wilson was my crew chief, okay, yep. what he did was he just raised the car. Oh. Now that puts my hood... Way up in the air. Way up in the air. And so he took it, it. It cost me, in order to make that bottom legal, he raises the front like two turns. And I go out and I lost two or three tenths, yeah. which now I qualified 43rd, man. I was like last. And I'm going, what is wrong with this? You know, I mean, it had been passing tack all the time up until qualifying. And, and I just went, oh, okay. So that was, you know, my, so. Your experience, yeah. Dad made sense, yeah. you know, but it was changing. And so, right. you know, it's way different today. So Now you were, you were running IROC prior to that? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. And doing really well in IROC. And, yeah. and so again, how did, who did, who taught you? You're driving a full body stock car on ovals. How did you just no, jump in that? and Just jump in it. You know, and uh, I was just able to adapt to it. I was I was able to, you know, just really, you know, I worked at it. I, I practiced the IROC car a lot. Okay. As many, as, you know, when we went, because we had Daytona, then we had Talladega, then we had Mid-Ohio, and then Watkins Glen. Right. Okay, so you had the super speedways, and then you had the road courses. The road courses I adapted to straight away. Sure. I mean, it was just a 
no-brainer. We, we did that. So where I really had to learn was Daytona and Talladega. Daytona, my very first IROC race at Daytona, I crashed out. Oh, geez. Oh, yeah, lost it off a dirt four, you know, in the draft. We just, all of a sudden, I'm up in the fence and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so I really started practicing, hanging out with Dale Sr., I, I went straight to him and made friends with him straight away. Sure. You know, Dale, help me. Help yep. me out here. I'm, I'm, I'm out of my realm. And, and Dale did. He took me under his arm, and, and he totally helped me. And uh, we ended up winning the IROC championship that first year. Wow. Because I won both road course races. Okay. You know, okay. So. That's a good guy to, to help you out on the super absolutely, speedways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So, you turn down F1, you turn down NASCAR. Yeah. You're you're now in the Penske car and in 94 you guys you guys yeah. dominate. Yeah, dominated. I mean the the team was so good, you know. There was there was 16 races for the IndyCar season. Penske, Team Penske won 12 of them. Okay. <sighs> I personally won 8 of them. And so I I batted 500 that year. Yeah. It was a just win in the Indy 500. You know, it was it was a great year, great year. Now, and then it all unravels in '95. <laughs> right. So you must have been, you know, you've had bad years before, you know, mm -hmm. and then you have this this stellar year. Do you allow the racing success to dictate how you feel, you know, about, about the whole year? You know, you can, it's so easy to get, you know, down after a bad race and be high mm -hmm. after a good race. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, the answer to your question, no, not really, because we're with a great team. Yeah. And it was slow. It was, it was slow to... Um, you know, not make the right decisions and so on. And, and so really it all, it, it had a lot to do with the whole team. You know, um, how do I want to say this? We, we as a team, we signed, you know, we, we had Mercedes Benz on, on badged on the car. Right. And it was Mercedes Benz all the way to, you know, the end of 99, which is, which is when I left Roger those six years. So 94 to 99. For engines. And, and so no, yeah, for engines, we had Mercedes, but it was Ilmore built. Okay. They, they were Ilmore engines. And then, um, at that time also in 96, Firestone really comes on strong. Okay. And so, you know, with, with Roger, what ended up happening, he sold Detroit diesel to Daimler Benz in either 2000 or 2001, right in that area. Okay. So he was, he was wanting to sell Detroit diesel to Daimler Benz. He's, he had been working that deal for several years. Okay. At in the, like 97, 98, somewhere in that area, Penske Auto Centers came online, which used to be Sears Auto Centers. Okay. So all across America, the Sears Auto Centers become Penske Auto Centers, uh, serving exclusively Goodyear tires. 
Okay. So um, when I would ask to either have a Honda or a Toyota, the answer was no. We have Mercedes. That's what we're going to do. When I would ask to go on the Firestone tires, he would say, no, we're on Goodyear's, and that's it. And so I think it was a change also with, with Roger's company, with Roger's corporation, where, where prior to that in the 70s, 80s, you know, Roger, if he saw another engine like the Cosworth come online, he had a Cosworth in his car sure. straight away. Yep. Okay. It would just, you know, he would switch up. He he has his own car, a Penske car. If the March car comes and starts out running it, he's got a March car. I mean, it just, that was the way Roger went racing. But then it started getting extremely popular, okay? And now you're talking about big companies, big corporations, so on, that affect, you know, the decision you're making with IndyCars. It was just... I, I call it a perfect storm. It was just a perfect storm of, of you know, when, and, and Roger wanted to win. He, absolutely. Sure. But, you know, you know, he goes, Al, this is what we have. Let's make the best out of what we have. And so that was me showing up to a racetrack during those, those three years going, you know, if everything goes right, I can finish 10th or 8th or you know i mean uh paul paul tracy was my teammate there for a little bit in during those lean years or whatever yeah you know on an oval at nazareth where we did a lot of testing right you know he won the race i finished second you know but those were just one-offs those were you know it was just so hard. Like I remember Paul, him and I coming to Toronto and we're running and, you know, we're, we're 12th and 15th and, you know, the end of practice or the end of qualifying, he gets out of the car and he goes, somebody please give me a setup, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, he was just, but that was Paul being Paul, you know, yeah. I mean, we were struggling. It was, it was because of the engine yeah. and the tires. Right. The car was good. It sure. was just, and the team was good. It, it just, those two key things just really, really stopped us. So, you know, we finish out the 99 season. I go back to Indianapolis because I want to get to back to Indy because of the split yep. and all that kind of stuff. And, and so um, we, um, we run that. 2000 season and roger asked me what what should i i go honda firestone reynard yeah just that's that's it so that's that's what he does and and he wins the championship you know right. with jill deferrin and, and so on so right it was yeah it, just the way things fell yeah just like at the beginning of my career the go-kart track being built just a mile away from my house yeah it was the way things fell the way you life know. goes, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So to go back to that '96 or '95 season, you're you guys are come off the best year ever, and then fail. Did you fail to make the 500? Yep. Yep. We missed the show at Indy. Yeah. And uh, that was in our own chassis, um, and that was 
that was just the car itself okay um uh, nigel bennett was the head designer brilliant head designer i mean he's the one that invented ground effects right with the with mario andretti's lotus right? right and so brilliant engineer he made some changes on the car that he felt was going to be better between 94 and 95 and when we got to the super speedway it didn't work and we didn't know why and then panic set in because of what we had done the year before at indy and so it was it was just the way again the way things fell you know for for penske racing as a team to miss the show at indy a lot of things out of our control actually went down right you know emerson making the show roger waving it off i'm making the show on on second weekend saturday uh i'm going i'm going down the backstretch on my third lap and the engine blew i mean which it was a fresh engine there was no reason it, why yeah you know it just did i mean so so things accumulated that were just you know just out of our control and it was just meant to be right now i i know you've got a heart out you got to leave yep. for the yep. for the toronto yep. indy but i want to uh, we'll gloss over a little bit of the rest of your career there and you wrote a book called my checkered past or a checkered past a checkered past right yep yep, yep and yep. uh that came out one last year yep came out last, last year, year and i'm looking yep, forward yep, to it on yep. audiobook yep yep we're gonna do the audiobook i've already read it okay and um at first it was i didn't know how time consuming it is to to do an audiobook sure uh so i didn't like it at first but then once i got into it then I got into the stories and I got into everything. And then I came back and actually at the end, I redid those first few chapters. Okay. So, so, you know, so on. So, yeah. Right. So you, do you still do, and I, do you still do some speaking and AA stuff and helping out with, with people with substance abuse disorder? A absolutely. Yeah. We, um, with the book, A Checkered Past, exactly what that means, A Checkered Past. And so I get into uh, just being brutally honest, okay, about uh, my racing and my personal life and so on. And so I've had my challenges with alcoholism and drug abuse and, you know, simply put, substance use disorder is, okay. is what I had most of my life. And so it started at a very young age, okay? And so... What started it at a young age? Um, it, Alcohol? It, no, it was marijuana okay. in New Mexico and um, like in high school, like, like okay. right at that, you know? And, and so... Uh, so yeah, it was the thing to do with sure. my with my friends and so on there in New Mexico and and so on and so uh, so it continued on with right. with my with my life and my marriage and and all that kind of stuff you know um, there in the eighties cocaine became a big thing and that was that was something that uh, that my wife Shelley you know got into and got that it. kind of thing and brought it into my world and. And, uh, and so, um, I get into all of that. Right. And so, 
my mom and my dad thought it was a huge risk not mm. to do, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. And, and, uh, and it's turned out and, and I just simply told my mom, I go, mom, this is the truth. Right. And if my experience can help someone else, then it's worth me going out and risking mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And, and so, especially for the way my life has turned out now, you know, right. um, I'm, I'm remarried to a wonderful lady, Norma. Um, life is just super good, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and so I wanted to show that, 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 you know, that, you put the work in, you, 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 you address these, you be honest. And that's really what it's all about is being honest. Okay. And honest with yourself. Right. And it's not, it's not bad to ask for help. It's actually the best thing you can do is ask for help because help is there for you in the, in the beginning. Okay. And once you start learning this is, as, as someone with substance use disorder, help is there and it needs, and it, you have to have help. Right. But then as it goes along, then it's really up to you. Sure. And that's where I try to try to help these, these individuals or what have you, um, that, that, you know, um, it's hard, but there's a bright, bright outcome when you, when you do do it. So, right. Yeah. Now, was it as, I, I think everyone can probably relate to this, and it probably comes from being a, a kid, you know, omitting certain things to your parents so you don't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And then that, you know, that becomes a habit and that grows until, you know, you're, you're omitting things, you're not being f- totally truthful in your life. And that's a big fear for people. Now that you're on the other side <laughs> of being brutally honest and mm-hmm. publicly brutally honest with yourself is it was the fear warranted um i don't know what you, you mean. know is it, is it a big relief now that that you've put it all out there well it it is in a in a way that the answer is yes okay because um the book has become well accepted throughout mm-hmm. okay and that was what i was really kind of worried about is how would how would the fans how would my fans how would people who were reading the book you know they're either going to be in shock or they're going to be going that makes sense kind of thing and, right. and and so so um the way things have turned out it's been worth it yes right absolutely it's been worth it and um, I think mainly because of the way my, my, my story is today, you know, right. it's, it, uh, yeah, I had my challenges and I prove in the book that I'm just a human being, you know, that's had all this success where, where, you know, one of the biggest Good and bad things that happened to me in my very first IndyCar race. My very first, it was at Riverside in 1982. It was in the fall. I had been having a successful season in Can-Am. Okay. Okay. IndyCar is right around the corner the next race. So I drive for uh, the Forsyth team at Riverside. And it's my very first IndyCar race. I'm sitting on the wall 
looking at my car before the very first practice session. So I've never driven this car yet. Okay. And it's practice. It's right. My dad comes up and sits down next to me and, and he can see that I'm super nervous, right? He can see that I'm just, and he go, he, he just kind of taps me on the leg and he goes, it's just a car. That's all it is. There's no difference between, you know, your Can-Am car and this car. They're both race cars. Just go out and drive it as such. Use your head and everything will be all right. And so I went, oh, okay. It's just another race car. Great, great. So I qualify 10th in this race, which I've just out-qualified A.J. Foyt, Gordon Johncock, Johnny Rutherford, you know, all of my idols, yeah. you know, and then racing in the race, I finished fifth. Okay. So I beat Mario. Yeah. I beat my dad, AJ Foy, Gordon Johncock, Johnny Rutherford, all of these idols that have been my, my, I mean, they're immortal. Right. Right. And so afterwards, after the race, I went, man, my heart's sad mm. because I just found out they're men. Yeah. They're just like me. Yeah. Now, the good thing is I can go out and I can race these guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can yeah, beat yeah. them. That's, yeah. that's, that's okay. So that's the positive side of it. But the negative side was, you know, they became men. Yeah. And that's a lot of what the feedback mm. I've been getting from the book is going, hey, you're just like me. I have these same challenges and these same issues, and and you do too. Wow. Yeah. You know, I thought you were, and no, we're we're humans. We're, yeah. We 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 have the same challenges that everyone else does. So, yeah, we're all made so, of yeah. the same stuff. That's right. That's right. Huh. So before I let you go, I got to ask for you two pieces of advice. Um. I guess we'll start with, well, no, let me, let me ask you about what you were up to last night here and what, what you're doing uh, on your weeknight classes. Ah, uh, my weeknight classes. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm helping teach a class. It's called SSWM. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's a college course out of California. It's online. Okay. okay. And it's about the racing industry. There's so many things in the racing industry. PR, marketing, um, engineering, driving, crew chiefing, aerodynamics, geometry. It, you know how the, the racing industry encompasses so much, yeah. right? Sponsorships all kinds of different things and so uh, I've, I've joined in with uh, with another um, uh, professor that is teaching it's an eight-week course okay. and uh, and so yeah we're, we're there to uh, I'm no professor by any means <laughs> I'm there to try to answer questions that may that the that the kids have the students have and, uh, and we've got we've got Everybody, it's online, so we've got from 16 years old up into the 40s. Oh, great. And so everything in between. So it's it's good. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's, yeah. So, yeah, the questions I normally ask is for, you know, 
advice you can give to young people. Uh, so I guess I'll start with an aspiring race car driver. What kind of advice are you, are you going to give from your unique experience to an aspiring young race car driver who wants to be a professional? A driver is drive anything. Okay. Drive anything. It doesn't matter what it is. You can even go out there and race motorcycles, okay? Um, if you're just starting out, it all depends on how old you are. Mm. You know, if you're young, young, okay, go-karts is the path. So go to a go-kart track and, and rent the go-karts. Yep. Get out there and see if you enjoy it and if you like it, and then carry it on from there. If you're a teenager or something like that, go to a driving school, get Barber Driving School and, and take their three-day course. And the instructors will let you know if you have it or if you don't. You know, that's how Danny Sullivan became a race car driver. He went to Skip Barber and they recognized his talent and they told him, hey, if you pursue this, yeah. you can go. And, and so then um, he needed to raise the money and he did he you know and so if your heart's in it you'll make it happen and so you know as a driver that's what you do and and so you know definitely go to college definitely go to school because of exactly what we're doing with with our online course right now is there's classes out there that will teach you how to raise the money okay to go racing and that is that's so critical the, the first thing is do you love it yep. do you truly enjoy it and then the next thing is how do i raise the money to do it because it's uber super expensive <laughs> yeah as you know and yep. so yeah that's my advice okay and then the second one now maybe i'll be more specific is someone who might think they have have substance use disorder you know because I, that's a very specific term you know, it's it's there's mm -hmm. people who can drink and have one drink a week and that's not using it improperly or disorder. But someone who has an inkling, hey, I might I might fall into this category. Right. Right. What's the next step? Well, recognizing it. OK, it's it's kind of easy to recognize if you have that one or two drinks and can't stop. That's your sure indicator that you have sus substance use disorder. Right. Okay, is if you can't stop. Okay. Right. Then the next thing, once once that is, then um, a recovery center is your best help. Okay. Uh, people, it, it again, it, it's so hard to identify, okay? Rather, you need to... Um, Go in lockdown. What I, what I call lockdown, okay, which is which is a rehab center. Yeah. Okay. That that is if you if you can't stop continuously doing it, where you know if you if you can stop for two or three days, but then not okay, and it continues on, then chances are you need a hospital. You need a a, a recovery center. Right. Okay. Um, there is AA that, uh, is worldwide. AA is the most successful treatment mm. to stop drinking. 
right? Okay, it is, it is the most successful. And so uh, find somebody that, that is in AA and, and, and talk to them because they're going to totally be honest with you. Right. Okay. I mean, AA, like, it's the most successful for a reason because it works. Okay. It worked for me. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, but the help is there and a recovery center. And, and, and once you get to that point where you're going, I can't stop, you know, I, 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 um, I'm, you know, sometimes you, you wake up in the morning and you've got a hangover and you go, I am not going to have a drink, you know, and you go out through the whole day and you start feeling better and better and better. And then at the end, you know, come dinner time, you know, I can have a drink. And then that goes to, you can't stop again. Right. Okay. That you need total abstinence at that point. And how you do that is you go to a recovery center and you do your 60 to 90 days and so on and really identify why this is happening, mm. okay? Why, why it's not most of the time, and it's pretty much all the time, not most, all the time, there's underlying issues going on that makes you do this. Okay, right. for me, it was grieving and codependence. Okay. Okay. You know, any kind of loss at all would send me into an escape. Right. Okay. And so um, there's dual disorders out there. There's PTSD. There's, there's bipolar there. I mean, it's the gambit. Sure. Okay. Which then brings you to mental health. Okay. Which mental health is huge in the world today. We're just getting around to all this kind of stuff. And, and so, um, everyone, if they have a brain, there's some kind of mental health in there, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Rather it be good, bad, indifferent, whatever. You know, if you're a human being, yeah. you, you have ideas and thoughts and, you know. And, uh, and so um, ask for help. Ask, you know, that, that, that's simply what, it, what, it, what it's about. Um, yeah. Oh, that's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, unless you're a... Unless you're a Buddhist monk sitting and meditating, you're going to have some struggles. Well, even that, yeah. you, you have struggles, okay? If you, unless you're AI. Yeah. And yeah, AI okay. is coming online nowadays, so yep. I think that's the only one. Right. I can't wait for uh, AI to set up my race car. There you go. There <laughs> All you right. Go. Really appreciate you coming on and, and really appreciate you writing okay. the book and, and being honest and and helping out, you know, like your weekly class and coming up to Toronto, making the trip and, and yeah. staying involved in the sport. Hey. Thank you, Gary. Awesome. Yeah, good luck this weekend. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. See you guys next week.